Well, good morning. Uh, my name is David Hershey. Uh, my wife and I attend here with our family, of course. And uh, I work over at Penn State Berks in campus ministry. And from time to time, uh, I get to come up here and give Tim a week off. So uh, that clip is from the movie A Time to Kill, based on uh, the John Grisham book. Came out back in, the, I think the book came out in the early 90s. The movie came out in the late 90s. I remember reading it when I was a teenager and just being uh, deeply moved. It's a, it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. The movie's pretty good, too. And it's, it's not necessarily fun, obviously, as you can see from the clip. Uh, the story starts with a young uh, girl, a young black girl, about 10 years old in Mississippi. I think it takes place in the 80s. And she is raped by two white men, which, of course, devastates her entire family. And her father, Carl Lee Haley, played in the clip by Samuel L. Jackson, decides to get revenge. He acquires an M16 machine gun. He hides in a janitor's closet in the, uh, in the courthouse. And when the two rapists are being taken out of one of their hearings, he bursts out of the closet and kills them. And that's pretty much just the first couple pages of the book. The rest of the story kind of revolves around this question of whether a black man can receive a fair trial in the state of Mississippi in the 1980s with segregation, the civil rights movement, not that far in the past. Because there's characters in the story, you get the impression that if the roles were reversed, if it had been a white father who killed the black men, that it, would, the tri- it, would not, it would not even go to trial. Like, there would be no indictment. Uh, he would probably get a medal or something. But the realities of the world that we live in, he's facing the death penalty. And this scene is, is, is challenging to, I think, many of us because they're having this conversation with it, Carl Lee with his lawyer, played by Matthew McConaughey, pretty young Matthew McConaughey. And uh, he's saying that, Carl Lee is saying to him, like, you think you're this forward-thinking, treat everybody equally, taking my case, doing good things for those in need. But deep down... You're just like one of what he calls the bad guys. You're just like one of the people wearing the masks in the KKK outside the trial protesting. You may not think you are, but deep down, you still see black, white. You still see him as, you still see me, Sam Carly Haley, as different. But he says that's the secret. That's why he's the secret weapon, because he knows how people think, how white people think, and how he can what he needs to say to, to get his client off of found, found not guilty. So this week we're uh, continuing this series here at Koinos called Alien Nation. Uh, if you're not living under a rock, you know that there's a pretty big election coming up, uh, one of the most divisive political campaigns that I'm sure many of us can remember. And uh, here at Koinos we've been going through a couple of different ways that the Bible ought to be informing maybe our uh, political views, our views of the world as people who call ourselves Christians. And this week, uh, I get the topic of how vulnerable people ought to influence us. In, in, in other words, we could say, when we enter in the voting booth, as those of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus, do we only vote based on what is good for us as individuals, what policies, what promises affect me and maybe my family and my friends 
or beyond that, because I think if you've been around, we're finding that these, these issues aren't just limited to the few minutes we spend on a Tuesday in November, but they're, they're, they go to all of our, li- our life. What responsibility do we have as people of God to take into consideration how all of our choices affect uh, the vulnerable or the voiceless? Do we care the choices we make, the way we vote, everything we do? Do we care how these things affect those in our world who aren't maybe quite as privileged as we are? And this transcends whatever political views we may have. Wherever we land on the spectrum, the question we're looking at is how do the vulnerable uh, influence how we may make our decisions? And I want to start in, in the scriptures. I want to start in the second book of the Bible, in the book of Exodus, right in the beginning. And if you know the book of Exodus, if you know the story, uh, the book of Exodus begins with the people of God, the Israelites, enslaved in the land of Egypt. And in the beginning of Exodus, in chapter, I'm going to read from chapter 2, verses 22, verses 23, that is, verses 23 and 24. And this sort of sums up the situation at the beginning of the book of Exodus. It says, During that long period, when they were enslaved, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So this gives us a picture of who God is in the very early part of the Bible story. And the Israelites who were enslaved, this understanding of God is going to stick with them throughout the rest of the story. Because the rest of the story of Exodus is a story of God choosing a man named Moses, and through Moses and through miracles and signs and wonders, leading the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and towards a land where they can be free. And if you were to read the rest of the story, you see throughout that this event of God saving them in the Exodus shapes their understanding of who God is and what God has done. The God of the Israelites is a God who hears people who are crying out in pain. God is a God who sees those who are suffering. And God is a God who becomes concerned and acts in the world to help and to care for those who are in need. If we were to look, we could look at lots of passages. We could spend all day just reading through, probably more than a day, reading through the Old Testament part of the Bible and just seeing over and over and over again as the story goes on, the people looking back to what God did for them. I just want to use one example. This comes from the fifth book of the Bible, a book called Deuteronomy, which is a fun one to say. And Deuteronomy comes quite a bit later. The people of Israel were rescued from Egypt and Deuteronomy is... Moses, the man that God chose to lead them out of Egypt, Deuteronomy is Moses' sort of farewell speeches because the people of Israel are about to enter that promised land where they're going to live as a free people, but Moses is not going with them. He's going to like go off and die somewhere. And Deuteronomy is like 30 chapters of Moses teaching them and reminding them what God has done, who God is, and from that what God desires for them to do. Just one example from this is Deuteronomy 10, verses 17, 18, and 19. It says, God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. So we see in this passage that 
Moses is reminding them that God defends those who have no one else to defend them. If you were the king of Egypt or well-off person, you don't really need, on a practical level, God's help. The king of Egypt would have had bodyguards, just like I think the president today, would have had an army if there was another nation invading them, lots of wealth, lots of resources. If you were an Israelite slave, you had nothing. You had no one. And into that situation, God comes in and stands up and defends you. And what Moses is saying is that they are to remember where they were when they were slaves and how there was no one helping them except for God. And because of that in their past, when they have their own nation, when they're living as a free people in their own country, that they are to treat the people that are now the way they were in the same way that God had treated them, that they are to love those who are weak, those who are vulnerable, the foreigners residing among them, the poor, the voiceless, and people like that. And again, we can go through the rest of the Old Testament and see whether it's the prophets, the Psalms, Proverbs, all over the place, the same idea that God is a God who hears crying out, who sees suffering, who rises up and helps those who have no one else to help them. Of course, God loves everybody in a general way of speaking. But we see throughout the scriptures that those who have, on a very practical level, no one to defend them, no one to come to their cause, that God steps in and is, is, is showing a special concern for those who need it. Of course, we're at a Christian church, so we might be thinking, how does Jesus relate to this? Uh, where does that fit in? And I think if you read the biographies, biographies of Jesus, if you read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, you see over and over again the same thing that Jesus identifies with and advocates for the poor and the weak. He feeds those who are hungry. He heals those who are sick. He brings hope to the oppressed and the voiceless and the vulnerable. And for Christians, this takes on an even deeper significance, I think, because Christians don't just believe that Jesus is like some great guy who just happened to be a cool teacher and did some really nice things. But we believe that Jesus is, is God in the flesh, that Jesus is the human face of God, that when God chose to visit this planet to become one of us, God didn't become a king or a president or like an uber-powerful rich guy, but God became a poor Jewish peasant. And God spent, when he walked among us, most of his time with other poor Jewish people, bringing them hope and life. So theologian uh, James Cone emphasizes Jesus' identification with the poor. He writes in one of his books, The cross-resurrection events, Jesus dying on the cross, rising from the dead, means that we now know that Jesus' ministry with the poor and the wretched was God affecting the divine will to liberate the oppressed. The Jesus story is the poor person's story because God in Christ becomes poor and weak in order that the oppressed might become liberated from poverty and powerlessness. So I believe that throughout Scripture, we recognize, we see that God has an all-encompassing love for all people, while at the same time, God appears to identify with and advocate for the most vulnerable and the weakest among us. And from that, we who consider ourselves followers of Jesus... Just like the Israelites in that Deuteronomy scripture I mentioned a moment ago were called to remember where they had been and to help those among them. We who are 
followers of Jesus, I believe, have the same call to identify with the voiceless and the vulnerable, to listen to their cry and to show love and help to them in whatever way we can. Speaking of whatever way we can, what are then are some uh, practical things that it might look like, ways that it might look like to, to do these things? Well, I think the first thing I want to say is that we, if we desire to identify with and advocate for the vulnerable, we need to be honest about our past failures as individuals and as, as, a, as a community. I am conscious of the fact that I am a white man standing up front right now and sort of lecturing all of us on caring for vulnerable people. And I want it to be said that I do not consider myself a vulnerable person at all. I recognize, though, that there may be people in this room who do consider yourself a vulnerable person. And I want you to know that I am not going to stand up here and try to say who belongs in which category and, 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 and what. I don't know your story. I don't know your background. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've been through. I can't declare who's where in this sort of vulnerable, not vulnerable um, grouping. But again, I do not consider myself someone's vulnerable. I'm not saying my life's perfect. Obviously, it'd be nice if, you know, we had a few less debts, maybe a little bit more money in the bank. Some, you know, things get stressful sometimes in life. Not to say life's perfect, but I am not someone who is, is vulnerable. And as I speak as a person who has experienced a degree of just privilege in America, I, I, I want to say that I'm focusing my, my message this morning really on people like me. Uh, I, as I've studied a number of scriptures in preparation for this morning, and I picked those two earlier, but I could have picked many more. I mean, I've been challenged by what the Bible says. Because again, I don't see myself as that defenseless person that has no resources that God's coming to to help. If anything, I see myself as the person that has the resources and God is warning that if I don't care for people, I may be in a little bit of trouble. So I think each of us must as individuals look at our lives, look into our hearts, and and decide through prayer and and listening to the Holy Spirit and God where we are, whether we're one of the vulnerable or, or someone like me, one of the privileged perhaps. I also, along with that, know that I am very flawed. One of the reasons I, I find that movie clip from earlier so, so moving is because as I watch that movie, I feel like Carl Lee Haley is talking right to me. Because I want people to think that I'm a forward-thinking guy, that I see all people regardless of their skin color, their gender, where, how much money they make. Like, I want people to think that I'm a person who just judges everybody equally, that I judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin or, or anything else. At the same time, I know there's darkness buried in the recesses of my heart. And sometimes those thoughts bubble up that I wish they weren't there. When I was a kid, uh, probably around seven or eight years old, I started watching football. And I guess maybe unlucky for me, I started becoming an Eagles fan because that was the, like, the local team and that's just who we watched. But this was like the Eagles back in the day with like Reggie White, uh, Jerome Brown, Keith Byers. These were like the great, great Eagles teams. And their quarterback was Randall Cunningham. And Randall Cunningham was probably my favorite player. And he was so fun to watch. If it wasn't for that dumb fog bowl that one year in Chicago, some of you kids, you can Google that one. They probably would have made it to the Super Bowl. Who knows? But like Randall Cunningham, I remember this one play where the Eagles were like way back in their own end. Like if you don't know football, imagine the football field and they have to go the whole way. And he went to throw the ball and like 
this guy came to town. He like ducked under one guy and jumped over another guy and threw it farther than an eight-year-old kid watching on TV thought was humanly possible. And this player for the Eagles like jumped up and caught the ball and went the whole way for a touchdown. It was fantastic. I also remember a Thanksgiving dinner overhearing my grandfather and maybe some uncles and other family members having a discussion about whether Randall Cunningham could play quarterback in the NFL because he's black. Talking about whether a black man has the intellectual capabilities or the leadership qualities to succeed in that position on the field. And of course, I love my grandpa, God rest his soul, but those kind of things, overhearing them as a kid, that certainly shaped my emerging understanding of race. Hearing other family members maybe say the N-word or, or tell a joke at the expense of people that just look different from us. And, and I'm very grateful that as I, as I grew up and, and made friends and, and read things and learned things and, and just over the years, those, those early ideas I heard from other people didn't really stick. Like I said, I, I've come to where I do think I, I, as best I can, judge people not based on outward appearances but on the content of their character. But at the same time, I'd be lying if there aren't times, again, when some of those stereotypes, maybe some of those bad words, bad jokes, for whatever reason, bubble up from my unconscious. And I hate that it happens, and I quelch it down as quickly as I can because I know logically it's not true. But I'd be lying if I didn't say it wasn't there. And I think if I want to be somebody who identifies with and advocates for people that are different than me, I need to be honest about my own faults and failures. And of course, if we're talking about failures, it extends beyond merely my own individual failures. We can look at the history of uh, the Christian church in general. And there's lots of different um, vulnerable, voiceless groups of people we could talk about. Uh, just with the movie clip and the different things I've been thinking about, it was, it was race that was on my mind, so I'll continue with that as my, as my illustration. But just look at American history. I mean, from the earliest times, you can look at Puritan authors in the colonial America who would preach and write to their Christian congregation about how to treat their slaves. Not like whether they should have slaves, but how to treat the Africans that they had enslaved. Then you come closer to the Civil War, and to the very end, you can read sermons even today. You can find them where Southern preachers are preaching that slavery is a gift from God. And if you reject slavery as a Christian, you might as well just get rid of the whole Bible. Because the same Bible that endorses slavery is what gives us, like, Jesus dying on the cross. Even after the Civil War, we get to, like, Jim Crow and, and lynching. Uh, between 1880 and 1950, 4,000 black people were lynched in the South in what we even today call the Bible Belt. And you can go online, and there's lots of documentation. You can find uncomfortable pictures to look at. And what's upsetting is that this would have been a lot of good Christian people who would come to church on Sunday, and then maybe, for whatever reason, go out and have fun at the lynching. Uh, you, that people would take pictures with their family, with the, with the victim burned and hung up there. They would even, there's reports, they would print out the pictures, however they did it back then. They would send it to friends saying, this is a picture of the barbecue we had last night. And we can come to even more recent history. We come to the civil rights movement, and we can find examples like of pastors who said things to, to Dr. Martin Luther King, like, we agree with your idea, but you're going a little too fast. Like, you're making people feel uncomfortable. Can't you just slow down with this whole, like, equality thing? And it was, it was messages like that, among other things, that led Dr. King 
to write in his letter from a Birmingham jail. He says, We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I've heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. So it's uncomfortable for me to hear that sort of thing. It's uncomfortable for me to admit it. But again, if I want to be someone, or if we want to be a community that desires to identify with and advocate for the vulnerable and the voiceless among us, we need to be honest with where we've screwed up in the past. And as we are honest with where we've screwed up in the past, I believe that we are in a position then to learn and listen in the present. Because if we recognize that we've messed up and we've failed in the past, we're open to the fact that we don't know it all now and we're susceptible to failing in the future. So when we encounter others who are different from us, who look different from us, who have different ideas from us, we go into those encounters with an attitude of listening and a willingness to learn. And I think our goal is to find people who will challenge our preconceived ideas and beliefs. And this takes, I think, a conscious effort on our part as individuals. We tend to surround ourselves with people who pat us on the back and agree with what we believe. Whether it's sitting at a restaurant somewhere, having a conversation with people, and and enjoying the fact that when you say something, they all say, oh yeah, I agree that way. Posting an article on Facebook and being happy that, you know, lots of people like it. To the point where maybe the only time we encounter people who, who disagree with us is when someone who agrees with us posts like a silly Facebook meme mocking the idiots who believe the other thing. And I'm guilty of that, by the way. I am a hypocrite. Anybody who follows me on Facebook, just for the record. But I know that if I want to listen to those who have a different opinion from me, who look different from me, who have different experiences than me, that takes a conscious effort on my part to seek that out. So for me, as someone who finds a lot of my news on Twitter, I need to follow people on Twitter who are not just other white men. I like to follow journalists. I like to follow pastors, people who are thinkers, people who post really interesting articles. I need to follow people that look differently than me. I need to read books by people who, again, are not just other white men in positions of power. If I'm someone who wants to listen to, identify with, advocate for the voiceless, my Twitter page, my, my books I read need to become filled with a lot more women and a lot more colorful than just white, I guess you could say. And of course, that in, there also includes sitting down across from people having real conversations in real life. The question then is simply is, what does it look like for us as individuals to listen to and learn from the voiceless and the vulnerable in the world today? How can we seek out voices and opinions from people who are simply different from us? And as we do this, as we start to or continue to listen to people who have a different view from us, who have a different background, background from us, we can move into a third from past, on, recognizing we failed in the past, being humble and learning in the present, being open then to the Spirit working in the future. As we recognize we've screwed up and as we listen to people, we're open to then acting in the way that God wants us to act. And this includes, I think, how we vote, but extends way beyond it. I think as, if, if we consider ourselves Christians, if you consider yourself a Christian, the way I vote next Tuesday has to be based simply on more than what's good for me. Because one of the main things of Christianity, is a very basic truth, is that we're called to put others before ourselves and self-sacrifice. So hopefully this is not a new and radical idea, but it ought to apply even to how we vote. We should take into consideration not just 
the policies and things that are good for me, but what's good for everybody. People in rural Berks County, people over the bridge in the city, people on the other end of the earth, whoever it may be. I do want to say, though, I don't think this is some sort of magic bullet where if we all just start to listen to people different from us, then we'll be able to hold hands and sing Kumbaya because we'll all vote the same. Like, we can do this. We probably, many of you probably do do this, and we still are going to disagree on how we vote, I would imagine. So this isn't like a secret weapon to get us all to agree. It's not that simple. But I think it is a step towards the right direction of just knowing that when we vote, again, we're not just taking into consideration what's good for me and my family, but what's good for everybody. But again, it extends way beyond the voting booth on Tuesday. I think it extends to every decision in life. What does it look like for a community like ours to identify with and advocate for the vulnerable right outside in our own community? We already do this. If you're new at CoinOS, we've already done this a lot in the past. We've partnered with the school in the city, 10th and Green. We do the campaign for women in crisis. We try to get involved with a lot of community organizations. So this isn't like me saying we don't do this. This is me simply saying, how can we continue to do this and have these conversations? What does it look like to identify with and advocate for residents in the city of Reading who look different from us but live in the community with us? What does it look like to identify with and advocate for residents of rural Berks County who have seen their world change perhaps because their jobs have gone away and they wonder if anything is coming back? They face an uncertain future. What does it look like to identify with and advocate for the voiceless and the vulnerable when we go to the grocery store? Does it matter to us if the children who pick the cocoa beans so we can have a chocolate bar are slaves or not? Is it worth spending a few dollars extra to ensure that people have a a living life on the other side of the world people will never meet? What does it look like to identify with and advocate for the millions of people who do not have clean water throughout the world? What does it look like to identify with and advocate for the millions of women and girls who are raped and abused on a daily basis, many of them because they have to walk miles and miles to get that clean water? What does it look like to identify with and advocate for our fellow Christians or even those of other religions who face persecution on a daily basis simply because of what they believe? What does it look like to uh, to identify with and advocate for unborn babies who face an uncertain future or perhaps no future at all? What does it look like to identify with and advocate for the mothers and fathers who wonder how they're going to feed these children, pay their medical bills, take care of them at all? Or what about, what does it look like to identify with and advocate for the millions who are enslaved and and mining minerals and working in sweatshops so we can enjoy cheap clothes and cool electronics and really our way of life in general? So what does it look like to identify with and advocate for all of these sorts of vulnerable people. I recognize that's a lot of things on a list and I could probably continue. And I want, again, I don't want this to be a guilt trip sort of thing where we all leave here feeling terrible about ourselves. Uh, I recognize that many of us, many of you are already taking some of these things into consideration. My goal is simply to, for us, to look at what we're doing and to be open to what the Spirit is calling us to do in the next little step in our lives. Because in reality, I know that I'm going to fail. I am not sitting up here as a person who does these things very well at all. I know that the memories of those early things I heard in my life is going to bubble up and I'm going to think thoughts I wish I didn't think. I know I'm going to forget to... I'm not going to think about people who aren't me or my family. I'm not going to take into consideration people on the other side of the world who have a tough life. I'm going to get comfortable going about my daily life doing what I do 
and only caring about me and mine. And ultimately, I think this is why I keep coming back to a place like this every Sunday. Because left to myself, I'm not going to become the person God has created me to be. We need each other. We need the encouragement that comes with being part of a community like this one. Left to ourselves, we're going to end up going back into that sort of self-centered laziness, sin, if you want to use that terminology. But I believe that as we come together as a community, as we encourage each other and meet together on a regular basis, that we can become the person, the people that God is creating us to be. And again, I cannot become that person without your help, and I believe that none of us can become that person without each other's help. And as we learn and continue to learn to identify with and advocate for those on the margins, those who are voices and vulnerable, we're going to find God there too. So I feel it's appropriate to end what I'm going to say this morning with a quote from uh, a Christian uh, feminist Asian theologian, uh, a woman named Grace Kim, who I have the opportunity of knowing a little bit and reading some of her books, and she writes very thoughtful stuff. So just with the subject matter, it seems like it's better to give her the last words than me. So I'm going to give, give a quote from a book she wrote called Embracing the Other. She says, God meets us in the margins. Since God dwells among the disinherited and dispossessed, we need to follow God's spirit to the places of darkness and despair. The same spirit that anointed the Hebrew prophets and Jesus, who cared for the marginalized, anoints us to be spirit-filled prophets today. It is God the spirit who gives the marginalized life and the moral courage to follow Jesus, to push against the constraints of marginalization, moving towards spaces of deep solidarity and a horizon of hope. We're actually going to go ahead and move from there into a time of uh, questions and comments. So someone's going to be around with a microphone, and if you have anything that you want to say, whether it's a question, something I didn't make clear, uh, a disagreement, someplace where you think I'm off my rocker, um, whatever it may be, feel free to throw a hand up in the air, and uh, I think Tim's going to have a microphone. Good morning. Um, Dave, I really appreciated your message. Um, I just wanted to add something as someone who spent about five years so far. um, My voice is shaking. I don't usually talk in front. (laughs) But um, I've spent about five years so far researching fair trade practices and how to stand up for people that don't have a voice. Um, So I just wanted to add two things that I think would be helpful um, to the really good wealth of knowledge that you gave us. Um, One is the list can sound really overwhelming, like the list of broken, ugly stuff and people to stand up for. Um, So I'd say if you feel overwhelmed, start commit to starting with one thing and then don't be satisfied with that, but continue when you feel comfortable, when you're ready. And the other thing that's really important, I think, about speaking up for people that aren't listened to or don't have as much of a voice is asking questions um, because sometimes of those people or doing research um, if you can't talk to those people because sometimes we mean well as privileged people um, but I'm discovering that sometimes those things we mean well with um, really hurts people like for example I just discovered that the Tom's shoes I love actually hurt the towns that they're made in. 
Um, so people get shoes, but it destroys villages. So, and I don't say that to add any overwhelming, but just ask, asking questions is really important. Um, so, but thank you for everything you said. No, that's great. I just, I actually saw an article on Facebook yesterday by a guy named Craig Greenfield. It was about being a white savior. And he just kind of drew the difference between our tendency to want to be a hero as opposed to like coming alongside people and being a sidekick. So I would recommend that article and thank you for sharing. That's great. I think that's great what Sarah said about taking it like one thing at a time and don't feeling overwhelmed. Like you have to all of a sudden today never buy Hershey chocolate again and never, you know, but just taking it like we've this past year committed to be the voice for animals because to us they're the most vulnerable and they can't, you know, do anything about their situation. So we've stopped eating meat, et cetera, et cetera. But the next thing we want to get, you know, we've looked at fair trade and things like that too. So it's a matter of just taking it one thing at a time based on what might speak to you the most and what pulls at your heart the most because there's so many things, there's so many causes. Um, But the other thing you mentioned is like how there's some parts of the Bible that are just so bad, like things like with slavery and it's like how can we as Christians, like, and part of what we were singing about today is how it can be hard to be a Christian because there's so much there to digest. It's like, how do you take one part of the Bible and be like, well, I'm behind this 150%, like the way the life of Jesus, but how do I still say I'm a Christian if there's parts of the Bible that I think are completely unacceptable? Like, do you just blame it on, well, that was the societal norm at that time, and so it's okay because they didn't know any better? Or, like, what makes that part of the Bible okay? Sure, that's a tough question. Um, I know know that... uh, Tim and others often say that uh, we recognize that Jesus is the clearest picture of who God is, that Jesus is the Word of God. So um, not that we simply jettison parts of the Bible we don't like or that don't, we don't think agree with Jesus, but we stand on what we find is the most solid, and we kind of leave some of the questions on the fringe. And obviously I can't really give a good answer to that question in two minutes, but I do think that there's a trajectory throughout the Bible where even if things seem bad, God's kind of pulling his people along to the next step up. So we may be like, well, how, how come it didn't just say, like, you know, earlier in the Bible that slavery is bad, period? I don't know. But you can still see that. I hate to say it because it sounds horrible, but if you had to live 3,000, 3,500 years ago, it would have better to have been a slave among the people of Israel than to be a slave among other people because there were rules and laws that God put in the Bible for how they were to treat their slaves. And again, it sounds horrible saying that out loud because... As people live now, we're like, that's, that's terrible. But I think if we see that kind of trajectory moving towards Jesus and then ultimately coming clear in Jesus, it does start to clear up. I don't think they ever go away, but it starts to clear up some of those questions. I don't want to upset my daughter because she's here. And my husband and I couldn't have our own children, so we went through infertility treatment to have our boys. And we wanted a baby girl in the worst way. And we had to fill all kind of paperwork out. And one of the questions were, since we're Caucasian, would we be willing to take a child of another race? And I said, why not? And so we got Rachel. And I've tried. I hope she thinks we've done a good job with her here, but she just came back from Atlanta and she said there's a difference between the way she was treated in Atlanta and the way she's treated up here 
and she came up out of no choice of her own. So she's here and could use prayer for, she came up with nothing. So just pray for her and the situation. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing. I think we have time for one more. Someone else? I thought I saw a hand go. Um, my name is Angel Cosman. Um, I'm Puerto Rican. I moved here from New Jersey eight years ago with my wife, and I have no family here. Uh, we moved to West Lawn, and I remember getting the newspaper, and I see Rodriguez, Melendez, Martinez, Guzman, you know, robbery, drug sales, whatnot. And I was like, wow, um, I didn't realize. Um, and it broke my heart. Um, and when I moved into the neighborhood we moved in, um, our neighbors, I was in the house, my wife was talking, a white older couple, and, um, and I remember coming out. He was surprised to see me come out. I can just see in his face. And I remember, or the other people that I've met since we've lived there, their first thing is, oh, are you from Reading? Um, my wife's a teacher in Reading. Um, and when she went to school, she went back, I mean, she went to school three years ago to become a teacher. Um, for a heart to go into writing. And what I'm trying to get at is I think that um, I'm trying to do my part as a watchdog that they have as a national program um, that I'm trying to get involved with. I, I do it at my, sister, my daughter's school, um, but I'm going to start doing it over at Glenside. Um, I think a lot of the churches, and this, I'm just going to talk about part, churches I've been a part of. We go into these communities and we do a project and we leave. And if you don't think that these kids and these families don't think that they, they're looked at as projects, you build a, a, a park and then you leave. Um, I mean, the park is good. You fixed it up. But engagement with these people. Um, my wife has 27 kids. 90% of them read under a fourth grade level. I would bet 70% don't have a dad. Um, epidemic. I grew up with seven. Me and my mom and seven of us grew up on welfare my whole life. None of us are on welfare anymore. Um, but that what I'm getting at is no dad. Um, what kills me is that we have a church on every corner with all these members and all these pastors and all these leaders, and we still have this mess. And I'm just challenging that. Um, I'm happy we're here. We've been here for a few months. I'm excited about what Coinos is about. And uh, just encourage anybody here, even if you don't have a child at the particular school, if you can get your clearances as far as a man, you can be a watchdog and, and you know, play a role. Um, it's huge. So thank you. Thank you for sharing. Awesome. Thank you, everybody, for honesty and sharing. It's fantastic. I'm going to go ahead and uh, say a prayer, and then we'll sing one more song. Heavenly Father, thank you for... Uh, Thank you for your words in scripture, words of challenge, words that sometimes are uncomfortable to hear, maybe uncomfortable for different reasons, things that strike us as uh, maybe offensive to our modern sensibilities, or maybe just uncomfortable because we see what you call us to do and, and we recognize that maybe we're not doing it. I, I, I pray that we as individuals and as a community would not just uh, engage in projects that we can do and leave, like was just said that we really just continue to invest ourselves more and more and find new ways to invest ourselves in the community around us and to be a light shining brightly. 
And as individuals, Lord, I pray we wouldn't leave here this morning just feeling overwhelmed uh, by all the suffering in the world or guilty because we don't do enough. But like was said, that we would just find that one thing that we can be passionate about to learn to learn about and to do and then later on to find another thing and just through that to grow into the people that, that you've created us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.